This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I-N-A-C-I-T-Y L-I-K-E-Y-O-U-R-S dot C-O-M for links to our social media, all popular podcast platforms, and links of interest pertaining to all episodes. On this episode, I chat with Monty, who is a short film producer living in Portland, Oregon. Join us as he discusses his early ventures into musical theater, his 20-year hiatus in artistic activity, his move to the Pacific Northwest, and eventually his return to film school and filmmaking. Here is Monty's story. Uh, my name is Monty Wolf. I am 40-ish, and I am originally from Louisiana, but I live in Portland, Oregon now. I guess from, I mean, as far back as I can remember, I was always creative, and I was really interested in movies. I remember uh, we had a, a set of Funk and Wagnalls encyclopedias, and I, at some point, ended up on movies in the, in the M section. I remember there were there was images of Gone with the Wind, like behind the scenes footage, and it just sort of fascinated me. I realized that it was a uh, it was not that it was make believe that it was you know people pretending, and I really wanted to be in on that. Unfortunately, I grew up in rural Louisiana, and uh, there just wasn't my, – my family wasn't really prepared to, to help me with that, and um, none of my teachers really were either. It's weird to think how different the world was just in – I mean, this was like the 80s, I guess. So the 80s in rural Louisiana were like the, I don't know, the 1940s. Nobody really – I mean, my teachers didn't seem to understand it because when I would tell them I wanted to work in movies, they would say, well, you have to be born in Hollywood. and I mean, obviously, I'm not Kirk Douglas's son, so you know, it was just kind of frustrating because I was born in Louisiana. I ended up um, getting into theater because that was something that you could do. In fact, I remember asking. I said I had I had read somewhere in a magazine about film school because uh, George Lucas, that was George Lucas and Spielberg and all those guys, they were the first like film school directors. And I was like, is there where's film school? What is this film school? And even my high school counselor was like, that doesn't really exist. So I um, – and this was before the internet, so I couldn't just look up you know, UCLA. They did some research, and apparently Southern Methodist University had a film department, but it had shut down by the 90s. So there was no film department there. So I, uh, I got into theater because that was sort of the next best thing. And um, uh, I went way to college. I wanted to get away from everybody. And so I went to Pineville, Louisiana to – oh my gosh, to um, Louisiana College, which was – a very, very, very strict Baptist private college. 
I'm not sure why I chose that one. Everybody, everybody was sort of pushing me to do that. My teachers were, and they got me scholarships. So, you know, so I, I felt like suddenly I was like caught up in sort of a wave and I had to just go ahead and go to this school. I, I lasted a semester because it was, I mean, I, it was impossible to make friends. I was just at that time sort of coming out and sort of aware of, of, you know, what I was rewinding a bit. I, I actually became aware that I was gay. Gosh, it was the day the challenger blew up and it had nothing to do with the challenger, but I'll, I'll never forget the day because that's the day. Um, I had, uh, the flu and I was at my aunt's house on her couch and her sofa was like this weird silk material. So you, I would slip through the, uh, the cushions and, uh, and I remember like I was already like in the cushions, like in the inside of the sofa, sort of peeking over the cushion and I was watching cartoons and it just sort of hit me that, you know, all the stuff the kids said at school, oh my God, I think it's true. I think I'm, I'm gay. And, um, it was depressing then. Cause I was like, you know, that meant that I was going to hell. That meant, you know, that I'd never have any friends. So I was, it was, you know, as an eight year old, that was kind of tough. And then, you know, heck, four, four hours later, the challenger blows up. So I just thought this is the worst day in the world. But so here I was, you know, at Louisiana College in uh, this was the 90s. Now, I had not come out to anybody. I, I went home for the weekend and uh, my cousin, Ann, I call her my cousin, Ann. she's not really my cousin, but that was how we kept boys from not thinking that we were dating when we were because we were best friends. So I called her cousin, Ann. I, I found her and I told her she was ecstatic. She was excited. Uh, you know, this is the, the mid nineties. So this was the, the end thing was to, you know, have a gay friend. I felt better cause I had gotten it off my chest, but I was like, but I've still got to go back to this college. I've still got to go back to this place where, you know, everybody's like, you know, uh, studying to become, you know, preachers. So I, I, I finished out the semester, uh, with a lot of C's just kind of stopped going to some classes cause I was too depressed. And then, uh, my mom said, Hey, if you, if you want to come back to back home, um, you can go to Panola junior college. I, my aunt and uncle had had a, uh, an exchange student, uh, from what was then Yugoslavia during the war, the Yugoslavian war, she, they brought her back and she, she stayed with them during the war. Uh, she had gone to Panola and then she had done very well. And she ended up going to, uh, Texas Christian university in, um, Fort Worth. So she, you know, was this sort of level of success. And my mom thought, well, you know, just do what she did and, you know, you'll do well. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. So I went to Panola again, doing theater. That was really the first time I ever had like a group of friends, um, literally like the stupid TV show. I had never had like, you know, a, a, a posse, a crew, you know, I had, I had sort of had my cousin Anne and that was about it. And I was always with, it was always me and one other person. Yeah, suddenly I had all these friends and we had like, this is before cell phones. So I always tell people it was so much fun because we were always driving around looking for each other. The, the, the search for each other would always lead us to, uh, to other adventures. You know, we would go to the video store because one of our friends worked there. Have you seen so-and-so? No, I haven't seen them, but, and they'd have something, some other little piece of the puzzle and we would just do it all day long. And somehow we also went to class sometimes. I don't know when we did that. I look back and I, I feel like I had so much time on my hands and now I'm like always like pressed for time and, and still can't get everything accomplished. I don't, I don't know how I did it, but, um, but yeah, I went to Panola for a little while and again, it was theater. I had just recently, it's so funny that, that cats, 
the the movie uh, is coming out soon because I had just seen Cats the musical uh, at the Strand Theater and um, I, I was so I I went to the record store and I bought a bunch of uh, uh, show tunes because uh, I had heard that you know gays like show tunes so I had to like you know see what that was all about and I um, I bought just tons of of like I think it was the Secret Garden uh, gosh um, I can't remember all of them. Oh, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, some Sondheim stuff. Yeah, it was really good. And and I sort of started learning the formula for, for musicals that there's there's this like, uh, you know, you need this song and that song. And then there's always a song that's a story within the story and, you know, all these different little, little pieces. So I started writing my own musical. I would write it. We were I'm trying to think what play we were doing. We were doing in theater at Panola. We were doing a play called Those That Play the Cro- those that played the clowns and it was a um in the uh, in the little book the little screenplay the script book it said that it was a failure on broadway and i thought well why are we doing it it was kind of fun it was for, it was sort of backstage with the the theater troupe that um hamlet hires when that whole story is going on in hamlet and you don't kind of find out that hamlet's part of this until near the end of the story but um i spent a lot of time backstage my character doesn't come out till the very end. So I would, I was in this little closet and that's where I would write. I would sit there and write and other characters would come in, you know, and their, their cues and stuff. And we'd talk for a little while and I'd write a little bit and, uh, and then they would leave again and do their little, you know, little bit and then they'd come back. One day I was at home and the Yugoslavian girl, uh, she was over and I was reading her some of the little poetry that I was writing and kind of explaining the story. And she said, my gosh, you know, you need to talk to Bernie. And I said, well, who is Bernie? And she said, well, when you start doing the musical in the, the, um, the spring, he'll be there. He always helps with the musicals. He helps fund them, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, cool. She's like, he's got lots of money. Maybe he would want to produce this. I said, that's crazy, but okay, yeah, sure. So um, over the break, I, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote, and then there's Bernie. He's there to help with the, uh, the show. Uh, I think we were doing Showboat. Ugh. After, the, after our first little little meeting or whatever, I walked up to him and said, you know, hey, Bernie, I'm Monty, and this is my notebook, and this is this idea I have, and here's some little, little, you know, writings and whatever, and he said, oh my gosh, that's great. He said, how about uh, you take the next two weeks and write it out, actually bang it out into a, a full script and bring it back to me, and I said, okay, so I did that, and two weeks later, I bring it back to him, and he said, yeah, I'll produce this, so my mind is blown. I'm 19 years old, and this guy is saying that he's going to produce my musical. Literally, I've never written a musical, and he's saying he's going to produce it. So, so then uh, the sort of wheels start turning for that, and he hires a musician in from a guy that that works with the Shreveport Symphony. Comes through, he comes through Carthage every uh, every week, and he hires this guy to um, write the music for it. Just absolutely the most beautiful music I've ever heard. I, I cry easy, but I literally cried like, cause I'm just like, this is my lyrics and my story. And this, this, you know, this, this guy was the Elton John to my, you know, my Tim Rice or my, uh, um, Bernie Topin and he's playing just beautiful music. Things were just moving along. And unfortunately at school, things were not moving along. I was not going to classes and I was failing classes and I was not paying attention. You know, I would be there for theater, but everything else was just kind of, eh. So yeah, this guy, um, Bernie, he hires a theater in New Mexico to do the sort of lab for the show. And 
to work out all the bugs. It was big. We were, I was, he was going to fly me out uh, on a specific day. I don't remember exactly when it was, but he's going to fly me out. Uh, my family held a big party for me and everybody bought me t-shirts with aliens on it because of New Mexico. Um, which now is a big thing again, apparently, apparently everything's cyclical. And so he, so yeah, so then the next day I get up, I'm so ready to go. I'm putting on my clothes. I'm getting everything ready. This is the first plane trip I've ever taken. This is the first time I've ever been out of Louisiana and Texas and, you know, Arkansas, that whole area. And I'm just so excited. And my boss calls me. Uh, she, I worked at a video store there in Carthage and she calls me and she says, Hey, um, I need to tell you something, but it's not good. And I was like, okay. And I totally thought, Oh my God, she knows that I stole uh, the birdcage and I'm going to be in so much trouble. Oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. And it wasn't that she said, Bernie is in jail. And I said, what? And she said, Bernie is in jail. Well, my first thought is I bet he was drug running. I bet he, that's why he had the plane. That's why it's what it was all about. All this was all drug money. I knew it. But I also thought my musical won't stop. It'll happen. You know, that's okay. He'll get off. And you know, it's, it's a technicality. I don't know. And I mean, I'm 19 years old. I'm, I'm sort of moralizing everything and trying to figure out how I can get this musical made. Then she tells me why he's in jail for murder. And I, I literally hit the ground. I've never felt like that before. It was just rocks in my gut. And what had happened was, which I guess if people in, in Shreveport may know about this, um, what had happened was he had actually been stealing from this older woman whom he sort of was a caretaker for. And at some point she found out about it and he murdered her and he put her in a freezer for nine months. And it wasn't until her son, who was somewhat estranged, uh, started looking for her and he had to actually get like the state troopers or somebody outside of Carthage to go in because the police in Carthage were like, no, Bernie wouldn't do that. We're not going to deal with this. And he had literally had to get an outside like police force to come in and look for her. And they found her. Yeah, that was, that was probably the lowest point of my life because I just felt like I, I was like right there. I was almost there and it was all taken away. I don't know. It was just, it was very, I think I spent the next 10 years sort of in a depression, in a, a sort of haze that I, I really didn't know what I was going to do or where I was going or what was, what was the point in anything? Cause you can't trust anybody. And it was just, it was tough at the time. I, I, I sort of like was very flippant about it. Um, I mean, I was again, 19, 20 years old. So I was probably flippant about everything, but I tried to pretend like it didn't bother me and that it didn't, that it wasn't, that it didn't affect me, but it really did. Um, to the point where I probably should have gone to therapy. But um, again, you know, growing up in the rural South, that, I, you know, I wasn't a New Yorker. We don't go to therapy. Yeah, it was pretty tough. And then like a decade passes. I'm thinking, you know, I've done nothing. I've been working at a, a video store. Then I worked at a grocery store. I worked at Ola Mills for a year. That was, that was awful. I, um, uh, but I say that I learned a lot about like lighting and positioning and it's, it's all very simple. It's literally like the McDonald's of photography, but I learned three point lighting and I learned, um, you know, how to position people to this day. I still say, can you please turn your uh, feet to the left? They're very nice. Can you turn your head back this way? Good. 
chin down. I mean, that's, you know, that's literally the, it, it, and if you start looking in magazines, you realize that every pose is basically a, 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 a complicated version of that Olin Mills pose. Um, yeah, I did that for a year. And then, um, and again, just, I was very, uh, at this point I still, you know, had not had, I'd had one real boyfriend at that point in Carthage, but that, you know, it, that was, wasn't, you know, it was a kid, it was a kid relationship basically. And then I still had not had any, like a real relationship at that point. And so I'm just, I feel like there was a theme that sort of was in my life from the beginning. And it was sort of this loneliness, this, this idea that I just didn't quite fit in anywhere. Even when I would find people that were like me, I would discover they're not that much like me because they didn't come from where I came from. You know, I mean, even today I meet, you know, um, you know, well-read people and people who love film and movies and they, you know, people who make movies, but they're still not, you know, they didn't come from Louisiana. They didn't come from, you know, rural Louisiana, literally the woods. I mean, I, I literally, um, I relate better to Laura Ingalls Wilder than I do to, you know, people of today because that's how I grew up, you know, in the big woods. But yeah, I, I there was definitely a, during that period, there was so much loneliness because I, I definitely had an issue where I couldn't trust people at that point because of the whole Bernie thing. And so I, and, and I just felt like even when I would get in a relationship, I felt like I would sort of sabotage it because I just didn't trust people. And God, like there was at least a decade or two where I just spun my wheels, just did nothing. It's like creative stuff was in my head, no outlet whatsoever. Um, and then, uh, what was it? Um, oh, I was going to Bipsy. I was going to Bossier Parish Community College and I was taking some broadcasting classes because again, it technically wasn't film school, but you know, it's the closest thing to it in, in that area. And it's probably much better now. I was taking some broadcasting classes and they wanted me to do an internship. So I, they sent me to channel six to KTAL. Somebody got it confused at KTAL and thought I was applying for a job and they gave me the job. So I, I went home and I was like, I, I think I got a job. So I got back the next day and I was a production assistant. And so for about three months, I was mostly you know, manning the cameras um, in, in the studio, uh, running the teleprompter and making copies and things like that. It was a lot of fun. At some point, um, the boss over all the photographers asked if I wanted to be a photographer he said he heard I could I could shoot, and I was like, sure. And so I tried that out, and I don't know. I guess I was good at it. Reporters always seem to like me. Like I, I definitely had reporters who would fight over me at the beginning of the day when they're deciding who's going with whom. Um, there were definitely reporters who would fight over me because I don't know. I guess I was fun and um, definitely non-threatening and a little creative. And you know, they're all wanting to make their tapes so they can get you know get out of there and get to market forty-two or whatever. And so. You know, I was creative and would let them do their their nonsense, all their crazy little stand-up routines, and and so that was a lot of fun for a while. But at the same time, I I I don't know. I news was kind of depressing because news is so negative and it's very exploitive. And I felt like we were just always asking, you know, people who you know child just got gunned down how they feel about it. And I mean, I know how they feel about it, and I don't think we need to be asking people that, but. Local news is like that. And, um, but occasionally we would do really nice stories, really good stories. And I felt like really benefited the community. 
I, I kept I kept harping on that for a while, and eventually, the uh, news director at KTAL gave me my own um, sort of franchise piece. It was, I think, I did it on Saturdays and Sundays, and it was called "Making a Difference," and it was just. I mean, I would shoot regular stuff with reporters during the week, but on the weekends, I would do these little, um, I mean, they were basically fluff pieces, but they were good news. They were people in the community that were doing good. And I would always, when I was doing the interview, I would always try to get them to say that they were making a difference so that I could use that as my, my tag out. Um, there was always, a, you know, at some point I would, you know, I just would try to, you know, get them to where they would say it. I think I'm making a difference. Perfect. That's great. That went on for a while. And then I, I went to channel three and I worked at channel three for a year. You have no idea how conservative that place is. Whoa. I won't say any names, but uh, some of the stuff I heard, I like, yeah, it, it, it wouldn't fly today. It, it shouldn't have flown then. And it certainly wouldn't fly in Portland. I was just like shocked sometimes at how, how racist people could be. And, Definitely how like xenophobic. Lots of at the time there was lots of like Muslim talk, and I was like, my God, like, do you people even know any Muslims? Why are you so you know Islamophobic? Um, but yeah, so I worked there for a year, but I definitely that was when I was um, definitely getting out of town soon. Well, you may think that history is eh, vaguely interesting. The truth is, it's fun and metal AF. Echoes of the past are still reverberating through our world today, and Body Count is here to show you how our shared history affects your life on the daily, whether you know it or not. So, are you past the point of higher education? Feel like you didn't learn anything from your high school history teacher? Or just didn't give a flying crap about it? Are you tired of always missing out on the yellow history pie piece and trivial pursuit? Are you the horror of all your friends' game nights? Did you once proudly announce that Napoleon Bonaparte was a super short little nutsack? When in reality, he was an average-sized nutsack. Have you been thinking about living under a faulty dam? Or perhaps an active volcano? <laughs> well, we have good news. It's not too late for you or your homeowner's insurance. Come on over and listen to Body Count, the podcast that explores death and disaster through the ages with only one rule. Someone, or usually a lot of someone's, dies. Because history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. A proud member of the MSE Podcast Network. I definitely went through a bad patch right there at the end before I left Shreveport. As if I hadn't been in – I went through a bad patch that was part of a bad patch. It was the, the climax of the bad patch, the 20-year bad patch. I was, I was in a relationship, and it was just terrible for me and terrible for them. And I was – you know, I shouldn't have stayed so long because I just made them miserable, and it made me miserable. I, you know, I, I just – like, again, that, it's that loneliness, that, that fear of being alone, and I, I allowed it to go on for so long. It was a disservice to, to him and a disservice to me, and it was just not good for anybody. Near the end of that, we had we broke up, and uh, we were still living in the house together. I mean, we, we owned a house. Uh, I remember the day I moved all my stuff from the bedroom into this small room in the house, and uh, when I got home from work, my dog was in the room, and it sort of dawned me, like, oh, I thought she was territorial with the, the master bedroom. She was territorial with me. And suddenly every night she slept in the new bedroom and I realized, oh, okay, I guess I'm hers. 
And so when it was time to leave, she was, she was who went with me. I, I ended up, we had the big, big sale and I sold everything and, uh, rented a car and she hopped in the car with me and we took off together and it's been nothing but an adventure since then. But actually what, what started the the trip to Portland was I had a, a sort of fever dream a vision and in the vision it's a it's a reoccurring dream that I've had a lot in my life and it's hard to explain but it it has to do with like low flying UFOs it's, that's the best way I can describe them it's objects in the sky and they are low flying so low that it literally feels like I could reach up and touch them but they're enormous so then I realized that they're not low they're just so enormous that like they seem close and I, I'd had similar dreams to that my whole life, and this one was kind of like that. Um, when you come out of the dream, it's those weird dreams where it takes a while to like shake it. it it's like um, that part of your brain that makes you dream is still working or something. I don't know. Uh, but in this dream, they were um, they were made of yarn, and the the sort of afterburner, the the fire at the, the back of the rockets was the yarn sort of flying in the air. I went into a house and told a friend. I said, "You've got to see this." And we came back out, and the friend said, they're going to the Pacific Northwest. And I was like, what? And I woke up. And I thought, what the hell does that mean, the Pacific Northwest? And so I looked up uh, UFOs, and I looked up yarn. And both of those mean uh, that you're not – that you f- you are not fulfilling something in your life. Your life is unfulfilled, and you, you need to do more. But with, it was strange to me that both of those things meant the same thing. So I started thinking about the Pacific Northwest, and I thought, well, what the hell is that? Is that Canada? I literally had no idea. That's thank you, you know, DeSoto Parish educational system. Um, I literally had no idea what the Pacific Northwest was. So I started looking it up, and I was like, oh, it's in America. Oh, okay, that's where Washington is. I had no idea. And so I thought, well, oh, okay, I know Seattle, you know, Pearl Jam. I know Seattle, and I kept kept researching, and then there was this town called Portland, and I remembered a guy years earlier would 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 leave for a while and come back. And I really had no idea where he was going. It was when I was younger. And, and he would always say, oh my gosh, you've got to move to Portland because you're just like those people up there. And I remember thinking back then, what the hell is he talking about? What is a Portland? But also, why am I like those people up there? That sort of clicked suddenly. And I was like, then this is where I need to go, this Portland place. This was maybe six months before Portlandia came out. And I had never heard of it. And I, so I thought, okay, that's, that's where I'll go then. And so, yeah, we packed up and we drove. I had a friend of a friend who lived here. She and I had started talking on the phone prior to me moving. And she said, you can totally move in with me. I won't let you starve to death. You can crash on the sofa until you can afford blah, blah, blah. It was the most humbling experience of my life. And I feel like that's something that everybody needs to go through. I was, I was definitely in sort of a, a a necessary spiritual place at the time. I think that if I hadn't been, I would have probably, you know, off myself because it was pretty bad. It's like I, you know, all the everything was meeting at the right spot. So I was in this sort of spiritual place and 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 really thinking of things like, you know, w- what I need to do to to better my life and better myself and make myself, you know, challenge myself. And part of it was this humbling sort of thing that I, you know, I had to accept that sometimes you do have to be humbled. And so I'm sleeping on somebody's futon in their living room. That's pretty damn humble. Um, I don't own anything and I'm, you know, pushing 40 at the time. And yeah, it's, it was like, okay, this is, and I think I I started feeling better than people when I was in Shreveport. And in a weird way, it was like, I felt like, you know, I have a relationship. I have 
I, I own a home. I've got a job in news. And it's such a, a, a crappy thing, but I kind of think I was feeling better than people and I needed to be told, you're not better than anybody at all. Like, not at all. And so I feel like that's what happened. I just suddenly realized, you know what? I'm not better than anybody and nobody's better than anybody. And no matter what amount of success I get now, I know that, you know, I've slept on a futon before. So I'm not, you know, I'm not better than anybody. And so here I am sleeping on this futon and the first two weeks it rained nonstop and I cannot like I, I'm not exaggerating. It literally rained nonstop. It felt like some sort of water planet on Star Wars or something. It was just, this is insane. People can't live like this. Like, really? Every day I would look out the window and it was just gray and raining. And I mean gray. Like, not like, oh, it's kind of a meh day. But no, it literally looked like sort of nighttime all the time. But I knew I had to get out and find a job and whatever. And so I did. I started going around and taking you know, my resume around. Again, I was not going to news stations. I was going to <laughs> – I went to a um, – uh, what's it called? Like a, a porn place? I don't, know. I don't know what you call it. <laughs> like a, a – a, you know, where they have toys and you know, I didn't get the job though. Um, but I got a job at a hotel. And again, it was humbling because uh, I remember like I was in banquets and A – Nobody in banquets spoke English, so I had to learn very quickly how to communicate, you know, beyond my, you know, my stupid one language. And then I remember the day we were doing a banquet, the mayor was there, and it was just this sort of like moment where I remembered I used to interview mayors, and now I'm just like giving his him his salmon. And it just felt so strange that like, you know, look where you are now. Like, you know, you used to you used to grill uh, you know, uh, Mayor Glover on stuff. And now you're, you know, you're just like giving him food, but it was fun. I made a lot of friends in, in that, in that area and, uh, had a lot of fun. And then let's see what happened. So I'm still living on the sofa and she had a roommate and that roommate moved out. And so I, I got the upgrade and now I had a good job so I could actually pay rent and, you know, buy food and stuff. And I got that pretty quickly. I'm, I'm, uh, she said the old roommate like took him like six months to get a job. And I was just like, no way. Like, there's no way I can do that. I have to have a job. I definitely partied a lot when I first got here because I could, I was, you know, I was suddenly single. I had lost a lot of weight. So I was cute. And, and she, you know, she went out to this little bar called Lucky's and it was like a dive bar because everything in Portland is a dive bar. It was just a lot of fun. Like I was meeting lots of people and going out and I definitely sort of you know, like, started dating immediately and dating lots of people. I mean, it was so much fun. And then I met a guy and we had a great time and we kind of, I definitely kind of fell in love with him for a second, for just a hot minute. And he was so beautiful. And then, um, he dumped me and that was just so tragic. And so I, I was like, okay, you know what? Maybe I need to cool it down a little bit, you know, get serious. All the while I was writing stuff. I was, you know, I was, I was sort of getting the, the spark again to be creative and so I'm writing uh, little scripts and things and um, editing little videos with the this, I had this crappy computer. I was just doing whatever editing I could. I would have the time I would have to edit blind or you couldn't really see what it was going to look like. But I could kind of guess because the program was too slow to really show me in real time what it would look like. And so I was doing little videos like that just to sort of keep being creative. Because I, I don't know. I guess it's just something some people have to do. I if I'm not doing something like that, I just feel like I'm wasting my life. Were you doing your photography at that point? I was not actually, I didn't even have a camera. Like heck, I didn't even have a good phone. I had a, a windows phone. Did you know there was such a thing? So awful. But yeah, I, I wasn't really doing any of that. Then, um, Halloween night, 
I had never responded to a um, uh, a grinder hookup. I was like, you know what? Back with it. I'm going to do it. I was terrible. About, I'm terrible still, like getting around in town. I never know where I'm going. But it took like I had to take like a bus and then the train and then the bus again. It took forever to get here and here because um, I'm sitting here. Like I, I finally got here and I came in and I was like, well, the guy's at least he's kind of he's like he's okay looking. I was really scared. I was like, I was really scared he was going to be hideous. And um, yeah, and we had a great night. Lang and he just kept talking and talking once it was over. Just kept talking and talking. And so I sat here in the bed and I was looking out at the view, which is incredible because you can see Mount Hood and Mount St. Helens. There's a tram that goes up to the hospital and it goes right past the bedroom window and it's just going back and forth, back and forth the whole time. And I'm like, that's just so weird. This is such a, I mean, where am I? Is this still Portland? Like, I feel like we're in like a magical land. And I just thought Starbuck would love to live here. I started dating the guy and about six months later, he's like, I'd really like it if you'd move in. And so I did. And so Starbuck does live here now and she does love it. And the rent hasn't, I mean, rent in Portland is insane. It's getting to San Francisco levels. It's just crazy. People are paying $2,000 for cardboard boxes. Our rent hasn't changed. Well, his rent, because I haven't been here that long, but his rent has not changed in 15 years. That's crazy. So we are very lucky. Like I, I, I am aware every day that we are the luckiest people in Portland and, you know, I just hope that nothing happens to our landlady because that would be bad. One day, he, I'm like talking about going back to school and actually finishing my degree because I have basically just hopped around from school to school and never really finished anything. You know, somebody either gets murdered or I get a job in news or, you know, something. He's, I said, well, I, I should probably go into teaching to, you know, so I can get a job. It's about getting a job. And he's like, but you've got a job. If you're going to go to college, go to college and do something you want to do. And so I saw this as my green light to take film. It's what I want to do. So if I'm going to spend all this money, why sh why would I just become a teacher? You know, although that's definitely you know in in the background. So I did. I went. I, I looked around for some programs. PSU has an incredible program. It was founded by a guy who was one of the blacklisted directors from Hollywood during the 50s. He moved up to Portland and started like a little film club, which eventually became like a little film library, which eventually um, was absorbed into the Portland State University. And he became one of the professors. So I'm like, that's awesome. Like, you know, my my school was started by a communist. And so it's it's such a uh, it's a great department. Um, I get. A little irked because there's so much emphasis on these stupid DSLRs, and I love DSLRs because every film I've made has been made with one, but the truth is it's not really preparing me for Hollywood because they don't make movies with DSLRs in Hollywood, but that's okay. I've learned so much. I really had no idea – like I, I would make films in the past, um, and I made one in Louisiana that premiered uh, up in the air. It premiered at the Robertson Film Center, and it was a nice little film. I mean you know that you're dealing with the fact that you know you – you don't have people who are going into acting because why would they be going into acting? You know, there's nothing, you know, where, where would they get a job? And so, you know, you're dealing with people who are amateurs, but you, you do your best. And, you know, and I think we did. We did a great little movie. I realized that so much of what didn't work about it was the fact that I knew nothing about film theory. Like people scoff at it, but it's it's so important to understand why you're using this shot or why would you go from, you know, this close up to then a shot of this person and what that means. And, you know, 
I, like so much of it, I, I just, you know, I didn't know. And so you're just basically kind of mimicking other films, but that's sort of like, you know, mimicking a language without knowing the syntax or whatever. And so learning all the, the theory has like totally changed. I mean, my first film in school to the films I'm working on now are like night and day. You know, at the same time, we're also learning, you know, about equipment and how to use the equipment and the lingo. And, you know, you know, you say this when you turn the camera off and you say this when you, you do whatever. And that's all been, you know, valuable as well. But and and then, of course, the fact that we I mean, I'm in with a group of people who all want to do film. And so we're sort of networking with each other and using each other. You know, you you do sound on my film and I promise you I'll act in your film. It's definitely a nice little community. The only thing that you know I would have to complain about is the fact that I am much older and they are much younger and you know they can't help that but it definitely you know there's there's again there's that loneliness like I'm I, there's always a there's always a a distance between me and and everybody around me I'm never quite like one of their people because you know I may fit in with them but at the same time I'm you know I've been here for 20 more years than they have I don't know if that's important so yeah I started PSU and it's been incredible because my, my grades are actually great for the first time in my life. Well, actually, they were good at Bipsy too, but I got a B recently in French, and I, it literally killed me. I was like, why? I literally cried a little bit. And I was like, am I one of those people now who cries because I got a B? And uh, French has actually been my uh, – oh, my God. It's like the hardest thing in the world. I've taken three classes now. I've got three more classes to go for my, my – um, my my major but um and and see like this to me is so difficult which actually this hasn't been difficult um but i literally haven't made a phone call in like 10 years i i'm terrified of phone calls and part of the french classes is that we have to um we have to skype with a french person in france and they have it's like a, a like a a group of people that you do it with so you you know you know it's not like you just cold call people um but uh, at first I thought this is going to be so hard to like, you know, first of all, I'm having to speak in French. And then secondly, I'm having to talk to somebody on the phone. And uh, it actually was a lot of fun. I, I had no idea that like talking on the phone would be fun. But um, but yeah, French has been the toughest thing for me because it's something that I I don't know anything about. And so I'm literally having to learn it from you know the beginning. Whereas at least film, I had this sort of, you know, I I, I knew enough that like the first few courses, you know, I – I know all this stuff, you know, so it felt good. And then you get to stuff that you don't quite know as well. And, you know, you learn a little more, but with French, it was learning from the beginning. I know no French, but well, now I do, I guess. Were you oh, taking classes in, in New York as well? Uh, New York was, um, was part of Portland state university. It was, a um, it was two classes. It was like, a uh, an abroad program, I guess you'd say like when, you know, when people go to London or whatever, except that it was two weeks in New York. That was – I can't even like – like it, it's such a cliche to say it was life-changing, but it was like we, we – first of all, me having never been anywhere. So I had – you know, growing up, I had been to Louisiana, Texas, and Arkansas. And then um, one summer, a wealthy cousin took me to Pensacola, Florida. So that's as far as I'd ever been. I'd been on a train, but I had never been in a plane. Um, in fact, I'm deathly afraid of flying. I'm – even I start talking about it and my feet get all tingly. I'm terrified of it. Really, when I moved here was such a huge ordeal. It was, I mean, I, um, 
prior to leaving, I had sort of got wrapped up in this sort of like fear bubble. I was just really scared of stuff, scared of dying, scared of having car wrecks, all this stuff. And so moving here was this huge, like, you just got to do it. You're just going to buck up and do it. And so I did, you know, going over all the mountain passes is such a metaphor for the whole ordeal in that, you know, you don't, you can't see over it. And so there's this fear of what's, what if the road just ends? What if you just fall off and, you know, and it's illogical, but it's a fear and that's what fears are. They're illogical. And so I, I, uh, but I'm, you know, once I got here, it was, it was easier since I've gone back and forth several times. Uh, I'm no longer afraid of like driving on the freeway or whatever, but yeah, the trip to New York, I had never been that far away from home. It was going to be a situation where I'm, I'm having to get there in a plane and I've never flown. And the only way back is in a plane. And I know that. So I've just got to deal with that. The two weeks I'm there, I'm literally having to stew over the fact that I'm going to, I have to get back on a plane again. And that was so scary for me, but I had to kind of put that in the back of my mind because I wanted to go see kinky boots and stuff. While we were there, we, um, part of the program was you had to put together a little film and then we had a, a showcase back here in Portland, but it was really just the fact that, you know, we got to get out and experience other people and this, you know, huge, you know, bunch of people these all these new yorkers who are nothing like i was expecting i you know there's the whole rude thing they're rude they're pushy and they were the nicest people i've ever met like they were so many of them were willing to stop what they were doing and show us which train to get on or whatever if they got on the same train they would like stop and talk to us and tell us stories like it was just the craziest thing i was like this is not what i was expecting now, one lady in Queens did say she was going to shove my camera up my ass, but that was that was different. But everybody else was really nice. Really, the the thing was is that we we got to get away from from Portland and our comfort zone, and we had to make a film, you know, somewhere where you know it wasn't easy, and it wasn't easy. I I kind of went an easy route and and just decided to do a um, sort of a, like a documentary or a, an essay film, I guess. Um, and so I just was able to like take lots of videos. Some people had to have actors and stuff and they, uh, um, do scenes. I actually was in a scene in, uh, Central Park and I was like, oh my gosh, this just, just being the actor for 10 minutes and then walking away made me nervous because they just had such a, a huge, you know, thing to do. But the film itself looked good. So they did a good job. I remember on the way I took a Xanax on, to get on the plane, took it on the plane and it didn't kick in until we reached New York, of course. So the whole whole way there, I'm just like waiting for the plane to fall out of the sky. I've told people it's not the it's not taking off or landing that scares me. It's the part where it's just up there for four hours, just up there somehow. That really freaks me out. And like even when I walk to the bathroom of the plane, I'm I'm so freaked out because I know that like I mean it's not really, but I know that underneath my feet is air. It's just nothing but air. But yeah, the, the Xanax kicked in about the time we got to New York. And I remember two, there were two other kids that were on the flight with us that were from my group. And so I was like, well, let me just follow them. And certainly they know where we're going. And we got on the little, um, little tram that takes you to, to a subway station where you, then you can go to whatever. And I woke up with my head on a man's shoulder. I was sleeping on his shoulder, snoring. I knew I was snoring. And he was totally nice. He let me do it. So that's that's his thing. Really, it was just, you know, the fact that we had to all, I feel like we all got to know each other and uh, in ways that you wouldn't if you were just like going to classes with each other because we're like living with each other and we're, um, 
uh, working with each other every day. And yeah, it was in, in this weird city that is so foreign and so, you know, not home. But yeah, it was a blast. For all the latest NASCAR content, including driver interviews, race recaps, fantasy NASCAR, listener call-ins, and giveaways, tune in weekly to the Lap Traffic Podcast on iTunes or your favorite hosting site on the web, thelaptrafficpodcast.com, and on Twitter, at LapTrafficPC. Don't get caught chasing the lucky dog. Tune in each and every week to the Lap Traffic Podcast. Let's talk a little bit about your film career as far as awards, your most recent short film and uh, previous short films. Sure, sure. So we, the, the first real film I made was uh, Up in the Air, and that was in Shreveport. I don't even know what um, sort of was my, I don't know what my goal was with it. I really don't, I don't know. I, I originally wrote it as a play. Then at some point thought, you know what, I could, this, this isn't too terrible. It's one location. I could do this as a, as a movie. Uh, of course, you know, I, I didn't know anything about the ins and outs of actual movie making. That's the thing. I didn't, I didn't really, you know, I, I knew little things, but not, gosh, there's just so much you have to know. And I, um, really took that for granted. We hired a guy, I think I paid him $500, which seems like enormous amount of money nowadays i'm paying people like 25 dollars to do stuff but i paid him 500 dollars to shoot it to be the dp uh one of the difficult things about that era in shreveport was that everybody that had access to good equipment was coming from the churches they were all coming from those big mega churches that have lots of money and they i guess they want to keep the teens around so they had like lots of toys for the teens to play with and um so that's where they were all coming from and so he was this really religious kid and of course my my film it, it wasn't super edgy because I, I just wasn't even that mindset yet and i was still a sort of i was still in this sort of apologetic gay thing where i would like put gay characters in there but it would be they would definitely be secondary characters they were that very 1990s gay character where they like weren't sexual at all they just sort of like existed in the film as somebody's best friend or something and they were just dripping with stereotypes so that was the and the gist of the story was basically i think the the main guy had snuck his girlfriend over and his best friend wanted to go do something because he was leaving for college or actually he wanted to tell the friend that he was like going to go off to college. And so he was trying to like, Hey, let's have a nice day today. Da, da, da. But the other guy brought his girlfriend over and then the, the mom comes home and catches them all at the house. They're supposed to, be, supposed to be somewhere. I don't know. And then in the middle of the whole sort of like everything boiling over the news announces that aliens have landed and Oh my God, how is this going to change our, our world? And sort of the, the theme was all these little things, once you see them in perspective, they don't, you know, once it's, once it's up against, you know, aliens coming down, how does that change things? You know, what do we think about sexuality or, or um, whatever when, you know, something so fundamental has changed like that? So, yeah, I, I premiered that at Robinson Film Center. There was another guy, they had to have two films and another guy premiered his film right after mine. It was so good. It was so good. I was so embarrassed. I was just like, why? Why did? Why couldn't it just be like garbage? It was so good. Um, I don't even know that guy's name anymore. I used to follow him on MySpace or something. I don't know. So then, I kind of thought like, oh man, things are gonna, you know, things are gonna go now. Move. They're gonna start moving, and it just didn't. And 
I really didn't know what to do either. I didn't know about film festivals. It's just so strange how, how like little I didn't know. And so I didn't know about film festivals. I didn't know what, what to, you know, what outlets I could do, you know, go with. And um, so it just sort of languished. It went to YouTube and it died there. I, I see it occasionally and I'm, I don't even have the, the password to, to get to that account. So I don't know. I really didn't do anything major until moving here. And then, oh, actually, no, I'm sorry. I did. I did. Welcome to my world, which is my, like, I feel it's my, my greatest failure. Welcome to my world. I mean, I, I, I feel like I got the whole community to really rally behind it and I got lots of people to be in it. And, you know, there was these, there was this big party scene that we shot at uh, David Nelson's place at Minicine and like, it was just so huge. And I feel like we, we shot a bunch of stuff and then we shot that big party scene and I feel like something broke inside me after the party scene and I just didn't have the, the drive to do it anymore. And I'm not sure what happened exactly. It was just like, maybe it was too much. Maybe it was just, you know, I don't know. I just, maybe I felt suddenly, um, I don't know. I saw my, my flaws and saw that I, you know, wasn't, you know, able to do this. And the truth is I was doing everything on my own. I, 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 I didn't know how to delegate and I also didn't know how to trust people because, you know, the truth is nobody else around the area, you know, had gone to film school. So they didn't know, which I didn't either. So, you know, I, we could have all done, you know, we could have all muddled around and probably done something good, but I, I just wasn't trusting people. It, it just sort of fell apart. And I've, I've always felt so horrible about that because so many people like came forward and donated food and, you know, like to, to feed the cast each day and like, you know, David Nelson gave me the place. And then there was also um, a coffee shop and I don't remember what it was called or who it was, but um, they, they allowed me to shoot there and like, I just, it was, I don't know. It just all fell apart in the end. And, um, and so I never put it together. Didn't even finish filming it. There was like a couple of scenes that were not filmed. And then once I moved here, I realized that I had lost like a huge chunk of the film because we were at that, at that time we were shooting on tape, but oh, and uh, AJ, AJ Haynes was in it. She and uh, when she was in the monkey business and they did like two or three songs for the film, it was like, I mean, it was such a huge thing and I just let it all fall apart and I will forever sort of lament about that. But it's sort of like every time I make a movie now, it's in the back of my mind and it's, it's sort of like, don't let that happen again. If you shoot today and you don't like what it looked like tomorrow, come back and shoot this again. Do not let it happen again. And if you feel overwhelmed, tell everyone, you know, Tell everyone that you're that's involved in it. Tell all your friends. Tell the cast. Tell everyone I'm feeling overwhelmed, and let's 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 try to make this you know work, which is what I did with my recent film. It was the first day of shooting. I felt a little overwhelmed, and I said, "Everybody, I'm really nervous, and I'm really shaky, and like I I uh, we've got to get through this." And I said, "This is going to be a great movie, but you know, I've got to get rid of these butterflies." And so you know, we all choked and had some fun, and and we shot. But, um, but yeah, once I moved here again, I, I didn't do anything for a while. I was just sort of writing and things like that. And then Kevin was already doing, Kevin is my partner. He was doing photography, um, sort of erotic photography. And so I had looked at his pictures and I was like, you know, this is kind of inspiring. Like, and he, he was doing it with like a, a point and shoot, not even a, a, a DSLR or anything. And I was like, this is really good stuff. Like I'm impressed. Like you have talent. 
but it also made me want to do it as well. So I like put a Craigslist ad out and some guys were like, yeah, we'll come pose for you. I mean, not the same time. And I would pay them, you know, $50 and we would do a shoot. And at the time I didn't even have lighting. I had like some, uh, you know, like the, the work lights or whatever, the big, you know, halogen. And then eventually I was able to afford good lighting and, and we bought two nice new cameras and, you know, just took time sort of build things back up. Kevin has plenty of like disposable income, but he, uh, he had no reasons to do anything. And now that I'm around, he has reasons to spend money. So that's good. The pictures sort of started it. And then I started doing collages. I, I think I just got stoned and, and started, you know, putting pictures together and sort of woke up the next day. was like, what the hell is this? Like, what is this in my mind? Is this what I think about? Like, it's so strange. And, and then like, as I kept doing it, these, the same sort of images kept cropping up. There's like a, there's like a devil character that's in a lot of my collages and he's always concerned with time and the earth. And there's also uh, a lot of objects on chains as though they're, there's some that are chained up and there's others that are on chains. Like it's a, a theatrical thing. Like it's um, like, it's not real. I, I don't know. I don't know where, where this stuff comes from. And then once I started school, it was, you know, I, it, because I didn't have a whole lot of time, I had to sort of concentrate on films. And so my first one, well, I do, you know, you do, you do a lot of little, little stuff in film school. So you're doing all this like little, like, um, uh, it depends on the class, like some it's for cinematography. So you've got to get beautiful pictures and some are for, you know, um, they're teaching you the Kuleshov effect. So you do this little thing where you have to demonstrate the Kuleshov effect by using the same photo of somebody's face, but this, every time you cut away, it's just something different to see how it makes you think differently about that person. And then eventually I was in my first narrative film production class. And at the, the end of it, there's, there's three narrative film production classes. They're the, the big classes in film school and are in this film school. And at the end of each one, you have to produce one film. So for the first one, it was a, a, a sort of ode to uh, Sunset Boulevard. It's a sort of com- comedic film with an aging actress. Uh, naturally, she's a drunk. She thinks that she's, you know, more important than she is, and she has this sort of um, butler played by Kevin, uh, who is um, uh, sort of long-suffering butler. Everything I do, I sort of imagine it like I would love to do this as a series. I would love to do this as a, you know, an eight-episode Netflix series, and I immediately start seeing the characters develop and their, their, you know, their later exploits. But for right now, I have to do it. You know, it has to be a ten-minute thing. Basically, there's the the long-suffering uh, uh, butler, and a, a kid comes from um, the studio. Like he's a he's a a courier, and he comes from the studio with her new script, and he reads it to her, and she wants him to read it with her. And it's very awkward for him because he's like, "Okay, I'll read it with you." And the gist is is that she's being offered the role of this like you know mean stepmother or whatever. But when he reads the cast list, she assumes that she's the ingenue, that she's the the beautiful young girl. And so she she reads that part. And you know, it's a lot of lot of humor in that. Uh, my my professor laughed because she said that it was obvious that the 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 kids in class did not get any of it. They didn't get, you know, the the joke that obviously an aging person would understand because I get that, you know, I'm not, you know, I wouldn't be playing the 20 year old hunk if I was in a film. So I get that. But if I had an ego, I might think I should. That was the first big project and it was, it really looked great. Like I shot it in black and white and I shot it and I shot it and I also did the audio and we would switch off. Anybody who wasn't in the scene would have to hold the boom and, you know, back and forth because there wasn't a whole lot going on at the time. And I hadn't really met a lot of people yet. 
for the second narrative film production class, I did a, um, a sort of science fiction film actually based on a story I wrote at Panola Junior College a bazillion years ago. And it deals with coming out, but in a science fiction-y sort of way. Uh, lots of like, lots of imagery of um, panels that are reflective, so you're having to constantly look at yourself, that sort of thing. Again, I shot it in black and white, but this time I got a guy to a friend here to to be my DP. He works for the like the educational system here, and they do like educational TV or whatever. I don't know. One of his episodes, he actually won an Emmy for. That did really well. That was the first time I really injected a lot of sort of homoeroticism and. And at that point, I, I thought, you know what? I've got my artwork, I've got my collages, and my photography, and my films, and I'm just kind of tired of of playing this sort of, you know, playing down any of the gay stuff. Honestly, I I just want to be a gay director. I want to be a gay filmmaker. I want to be. I don't want to make. You know, there are thousands of straight directors out there who can make their little movies. I want to make my movies, and I want to I want to be honest with myself and with you know with the audience. I want to, you know, tell stories that come from my heart and are real. And at that point, I said, "Okay, that's it. You know, I've, I've got to do that." So my next film was for my narrative film production three class, and that was In Pieces. Um, In Pieces is, it's just a, it's, it, it can only be ten minutes long, so it had to be like very, com- you know, I wouldn't say compact, just simple. It had to be really simple. And so it's just basically uh, two boys, one. They allude to having a great night the night before. They had a lot of fun, and one of them is now crushing really bad on the other one. And so he sent him a text and told them that. And he, the other guy hasn't sent him a text back. And so it's just sort of fretting over that. They're going to be at a party tonight. And so here I was again, just like Welcome to My World. I am shooting another party scene. And I, this, is, you know, this is really when I started thinking, okay, I've got to do this. There's going to be a lot of people at the house, and I've got to do this. That night, everybody started canceling. Like people, you know, it's actually a Portland thing. It's this flaky Portland thing. And um, I do it too. I'm really bad about it. They started sending me, you know, the, the messages. Oh, I'm so sorry. Something came up. I've got to do something. Oh, no big deal. And so I, would, I started shooting out more messages to other people saying, please, please, please. I need a few people here. I just need, you know, if we can get 10 people and kind of move them around and look like a party. And oh my God, I made a mistake because so many people showed up here. It. It was insane. Like I walked to the bathroom and when I came out, there was like 50 people in my living room and then they just kept coming. There were people going down my steps, down to the street. I mean, it was just so many people. We had to like literally put people out in the yard to keep them just corralled. People were in the bedroom that we weren't shooting in the bedroom. It was actually just going to be like, you know, equipment in here, but we literally had to put people in here just to get them out of the way. And I had tons of beer and Cokes and just gave everybody drinks and said, let's just have a good time. And so we literally, instead of filming a party scene, we basically filmed in a party. It was just crazy. But that movie turned out so well and I'm so pleased with it. With any of my stuff, as I'm editing, I'm like, there's a point when I'm editing, I'm like, this is so stupid. This isn't working. This is just not working. Like I I don't have it. I don't have what it takes to do this. I, I just can't do it. It maybe you know I, I start like thinking you know I you know I grew up in rural Louisiana what do I have what what could I you know possibly have and then at some point it's like I don't know it just comes together and suddenly you realize oh no there there is a movie in this but the great thing about that experience was that with the class we had to bring our our, our cut of the film in every week and we would get critiqued by the class 
now the the professor would sort of contextualize it all like if people started saying stuff that he's like that's not important we need to be talking about this sort of thing you know i know you don't like the dress that person's wearing but that can't be helped you know they're wearing that and so that was so beneficial because that movie really was cut almost by all those people as they would like say stuff i would realize yeah they're right that doesn't make sense or me putting that scene before that scene yeah that, that it would make a lot more sense if i did it the other way and so i i took their advice and i know that that's really what they do in hollywood Sometimes, you know, I've heard the stories of Star Wars that it was like the first cut was three hours long and was horrible. And literally Spielberg and uh, Brian De Palma told Lucas, this is a mess. And his wife took it and literally saved it. George Lucas's wife. And so I always think of that when I'm cutting, you know, I'm like, it's it's not what was filmed. It's 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 cutting that makes this movie a movie. And so um, I premiered in pieces at the showcase at school just for for larks i mean it's a 10 minute movie you know i you know i just i didn't really think i don't honestly i didn't know what you would see at film festivals so i didn't you know i didn't know what the competition would be like or or whatever i didn't know what the standards were so i just went ahead and put it out there i put it gave it to a few film festivals little local ones and lo and behold they took it liked it then I started winning a couple of awards. I won um, honorable mention at one and I won uh, best LGBT short at another. That was big. Like that felt good for the first time ever. I felt like, okay, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. I, I can't explain how good it felt that first time we were watching it at the showcase at school. And um, I have a little, little logo that pops up there where it's like a, a, an old projector and it says, you know, Monty Wolf film the whole crowd started clapping and screaming for it. And, you know, I, to me, I just thought of myself as the, the old guy at school, you know, but I realized they had all been talking about it and they were anticipating this movie. And that was exciting. You know, half of them were there for the party scene. So they kind of knew, you know, what was going on. And so like, it was, it was just like, they're cheering and they're, they're, they're hooping and hollering. And then, and then the movie plays, at the very end when the two guys like actually the, the cute sweet scene happens and they kiss and it's this you know sort of like you know the music builds and all that and everybody just started clapping and screaming and i was just like that's what i want like this is what i want i want to make movies that have guys kissing and people <laughs> scream and clap this is great and then now the the next uh film festival wasn't quite as uh um they weren't as excited as that but there was still, it still felt good, especially to win. And pieces really sort of like, once that happened, and that, that was re fairly recent, that was when I realized, yeah, I can do this. I, I can definitely do this. And I'm going to fail again, probably, but I can do this. And so Treasure was actually um, a film, or I had come up with a concept years ago. And it was, a, a I say, a straight story, because it was about a boy and a girl. Cause it was when I was in that part of my life when I, I was too scared to sort of like, you know, speak from my heart. So I felt like I had to give everybody what they wanted to see, which was boy girl stories. There was a, Oh, there's that, there's some kind of contest in Shreveport where you, um, it's to showcase Shreveport as a, as a location for filming. I can't think what it's called, but L oh, Louisiana the, film prize. Yes. Yes. And, um, and so I was like back then I was like, Oh, I'll enter that. And so I borrowed Kern Courtney's camera shot, like a, a version of treasure, I guess you'd say I, I, it was only one person plus, uh, my niece played, uh, his mother from years ago in a flashback. There was a little kid. And then my mom played 
her all grown up, I guess. I really never quite thought it through, like, who was who. Yeah, I shot that, took him, like, out in the woods and had him walk around. And then uh, there was, like, a little scene in the uh, in, a, in my garage that I fixed up like it was a little shack in the woods. And, of course, there was nudity in it. So it was, this was a precursor to where I was going with my career. I showed it at uh, Minicine. That was that was the, really the only time it showed. Uh, it did not get picked up for a Louisiana Film Prize. Probably because it was post-apocalyptic, and they, that was probably not the goal of <laughs> showcasing Shreveport as a nice location. But, um, of course, Walking Dead could have done something there. But, yeah, I showed it at Minicine, and, you know, that was, I was, it was fun. I was like, okay, this is fun. But when it came to make my next film after In Pieces, I went back to that idea and rewrote it as basically a gay love story really like tried to concentrate on I the theme sort of changed a couple of times originally it was it had to do with what we treasure you know is it things or people and it's still that's still there but it definitely like morphed more into you know what is our worth as people you know and what some people may not find worth in us but other people do I've told people it's actually a, a true story based on mine and Kevin's relationship because um, it's the way I filmed it and, and sort of the, the themes of it have to do with fairy tales. And it works out for these these guys in this movie. You know, Everything works out and it, they, they live happily ever after. And the idea is that the, the concept of an easy gay relationship, same-sex relationship, is a fairy tale. It takes work. It definitely takes work. And I, I say that with, you know, happily i mean it, I, i'm glad it takes work it, if it was a fairy tale it wouldn't be worth it um but that's sort of the theme of it if, if you like kevin has noticed as, as he's watched it like oh my god that's that's literally stuff we went through except you know it's post-apocalyptic and out in the woods so yeah it's it it's mostly a fairy tale and and um it's just it doesn't take place in the middle ages or whatever you know that that era it takes place in you know 20 years after the fall of civilization in the story, the guys read out of a storybook because there is this sort of mirroring going on where they're reading a, a sort of fairy tale storybook, which mirrors what they're going through in that there are illustrations of these characters that look very much like them, except they're fairy tale characters, you know, swords and all that sort of thing. Um, there's a girl in town that's actually um, drawing that stuff. She's She's got two of them to me so far, and they're incredible. I'm just like, I'm always blown away at people's talent. I, I love talent, and it I'll never not be appreciative of it. I'm not a jealous person per se. <laughs> I, uh, when people are talented, I just want to be around them. That's all. You know, I, I guess I would be jealous if they just didn't like me. Uh, yeah, I just love talented people. And so I, I, she's doing an amazing job. And then my roommate is a musician and he sort of specializes in electronic music. And I, from the very beginning, I just thought this would be great with a sort of synthy score that sounds sort of like Stranger Things or um, or a lot of those uh, synth scores from the science fiction movies in the early, early 80s, the sort of B movies, the ones that would come on cable late at night or whatever. So he's he's been coming up with some like sounds and, and melodies and stuff, and then I have to give him the actual cut of the film if I'll ever finish cutting it. Yeah, and he will ha- he'll put the soundtrack on there, and the goal is to premiere uh, in September when school has started back so that you know everybody will be back from school and can see it. At that point, it's just going to go to film festivals. I really think, like, just looking at the cut with no, no music, no good sound effects in it yet. It, you know, it still needs some color grading. It's incredible. It it makes me cry every time I watch it. Once you get to the end, you you feel it, and you you know, and that's really that was the goal. Was like, does this feel right? Do you do you 
do you become interested in these characters? Do you want to follow them? And when they finally get together, you know, does that make you happy? I mean, it does me. I just, I, it just, it's just incredible. 